One of the things about um, things that we know about a stories we've read from the Bible is that we file them away in our minds. And the problem there is then that we don't go back and try to get more out of it. And we don't relate it to our everyday living. So today we're going to have a look at David and Goliath and Saul. And we're going to see what we can get out of it and what is applicable to us today. Now, most most of you have in your mind filed away the story of David and Goliath. And that will be something like this. The Philistines were doing a Putin. They were coming into Israel hoping to take their land and enslave them. And rather than the armies fighting, they lined up on either side of a valley and the Philistines had a giant, this huge invincible giant who had come out and said, tell you what, we'll have a one-on-one fight. If you, you select someone, if they beat me, we'll be your slaves. If I beat them, you'll be our slaves. And then along comes a shepherd boy called David. He gets his sling and throws the stone at Goliath and God miraculously guides it to hit him in the forehead and kill him. So perhaps that's that's not a bad summary, but there's a lot more involved. And I want to say this, it's not a miracle. Now, I believe in miracles. I believe in all the miracles in the Bible where God steps in and he does something that has no natural cause that you could spot, but is obviously God intervening, especially so that he can say, this is God speaking now. This isn't one of those occasions. This is something better. What it is, actually, it's it's an illustration of what we've been studying the last few weeks, of living as people of the resurrection. Now, obviously a question that immediately comes to mind is, how can that be because David is 1,000 years behind Jesus? Before Jesus, not behind. <laughs> so, you know, he wouldn't have known nothing about the resurrection. But the thing is that David was so close to God that he could see what had to happen. He could see how God reacts and that God was going to step into history at some point to sort things out. Here's, because apart from being a shepherd, because being a shepherd you have a lot of spare time because you're just sitting watching sheep most of the time. 
but he's quite known. He wrote a lot of songs. A lot of the Psalms are songs of David. And here's one of them, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away when I groan from help? That's what Jesus said on the cross. On the cross, he directed the people's attention to this psalm of David. And it goes on. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. And further on, my enemies surrounded me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. So this is a thousand years before the crucifixion. It's like David is sitting there with a video camera and recording because he could see so clearly Jesus' work of redemption coming at some point in the future. And even the resurrection, when Peter was giving the first sermon, when he was trying to explain to the Jewish people the resurrection, he quotes King David. Another of his psalms, Psalm 16. You will, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. He understood too that the resurrection had to come as a consequence. That complete victory over sin and death meant there must be a resurrection. So David's closeness meant he was living as we should be living in that sort of close relationship. So we're going to have a look at um, Saul and David. You see, Saul was the first king of Israel. God had guided the prophet Samuel to choose this man, Saul, good-looking, very shy, did not want to do the job, did not want to be king. In fact, when it came for the, the coronation, when Samuel would pour the oil on him, they couldn't find him. He was hiding. But God's spirit came upon him and gave him what he needed to be the king. Unfortunately, Saul didn't stick to that. You find him repeatedly doing what he was not supposed to do and doing it, well, we might come back to that. We'll come back to that later. But eventually Samuel says to him, no, this is it. You're not going to be king forever. God's, God's cutting you loose. 
you will be replaced as king. And so he went and God guided him to David. And secretly, this is what happened. We've got it up on the screen. He found David's family. As David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. We were talking last week about relationships and relationships with God. In those days, God didn't have a close relationship with everyone. It was just here and there. But now, since the first Easter, God's spirit comes into every believer and we have that connection. Saul's connection was broken and David's was growing. He went back, he was looking after sheep. He was a teenager probably at this time. He said, he, we don't know exactly. And as he was looking after the sheep and he was writing the songs, he was getting closer and closer to God. And when wild animals came, God helped him to defeat them to protect the sheep. And so he was building up his skills. He was building up his relationship. And Saul was going the other way. You see, the next thing is that our relationship with God reflects our relationship with ourselves how we see ourselves. When God's spirit went away from Saul, he had recurring bouts of depression and fear and rage. Now, he didn't know when he was going to lose his job. Ended up being quite some years in the future. But this kept coming back to him. This kept coming back to him. There's um, 1 Samuel 15. This is when Samuel says to, to uh, sorry, I'm going back to the wrong place. This is when Samuel says to Saul, that's it, you've had your chance. Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel and he sent you on a mission. I get a bit worried sometimes when you hear preachers talking about, oh, you have to love yourself, that self-esteem is a very important thing. Uh, because I think it... It generally comes from a humanist point of view in that it's saying, oh, look, there's no such thing as sin. You're perfect. You never do anything wrong. You're a wonderful, wonderful human being. And uh, 
you need to need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and think of yourself that way. The Bible doesn't say a great deal about self-esteem, but it does say something. And so uh, can I bring that up to verse 17? Okay. Yeah, which is just what I read. And you see here it says, whoops, no, go back, sorry, go back a bit. That's the one. I'm going, I don't know what you've got. Right, okay. Saul had a self-esteem problem. He hated himself. He didn't think much of himself. So it does happen. David had the opposite problem. David pretty clearly loved himself. Now, let's have a look here. This is uh, when David has come to visit the battleground and uh, Goliath used to come out morning and night and, and issue his challenge. So if we can go to the next one, verse 24 of 17, chapter 17. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, that's Goliath, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempt from paying tax. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing the Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yep, that's the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway? What about those sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Now, <clears throat> maybe you think this is just a lie being sick of his little brat of a brother. Or maybe because the only people who knew about the secret anointing, the, the secret choosing of David were his family. And Eliab knew. In fact, being the eldest, he was, you know, Samuel thought he was first choice and God had to say, no, no, not, not Eliab. Keep looking down, down the family. So maybe it was a bit of jealousy. But then maybe Eliab had a pretty good understanding of David's character. Because... Many years later, many, many years later, when David was king, the worst thing he ever did was the matter of Uriah and Bathsheba. You see, David, as king, decided he wouldn't go to battle. He'd leave it to someone else. And so he was goofing off around the palace and he looked down to property behind, and he saw Bathsheba having a bath. A friend of his, 
the wife of his friend. And he said, I'll have a bit of that. And he brought her up and seduced her, and she got pregnant. And he destroyed a family, and he had Uriah killed in an attempt to cover it up. Why? Because he was neglecting those that he should have been looking after, and he was putting his wants first. It's pretty much what Eliab said. In fact, when the prophet Nathan came and said, God's not over you with this, he actually used uh, sheep and looking after sheep as a parallel. So David was really full of himself. He loved himself so much that he would neglect other people and he would hurt other people because he really only wanted what was good for David. So you have Saul on one side and you have David on the other. They both had the wrong opinion of themselves. David's was brought under control. In fact, when it came to the actual battle with Goliath, he gives a great speech about how it's, this battle is all about God's glory and about making his name known and about, uh, about God, not about David. So both of them have got a problem and the solution is the same. They're both fine when they remember that they have a purpose in God's eyes, that God has chosen them to do something, to be leaders. They were both, both kings. But when they remembered that, that's when the problem of their self-esteem or too much self-esteem was fixed. So we come to confidence and expectation. What sort of expectation did Saul have? Well, Saul had been told he was going to lose the kingship. And it, it's not like the prime ministership with Scott Morrison. He, he, he wasn't going to sit on the opposition benches or drive a Uber or something like that. You lose the kingship when you lose your life. So Saul expected to lose. He knew he was going to die. He's going to lose the kingship. So that's why he didn't want to fight Goliath. He had this expectation that he was going to lose. So he was hoping that someone else would do the job for him. He was expecting someone, he was even expecting his daughter to do a lot of the rewarding. David, on the other hand, had a promise that he would become king. Now, that's not going to happen if you're dead. 
So he had an expectation that he was going to live. He had an expectation that God was going to do something wonderful through him. And he had confidence because since he'd been anointed, since he'd been developing his skills and looking after the sheep, he'd had experiences. Uh, he, we skipped over those verses. But he had to battle a lion and a bear just in the course of his normal work. So he, he had confidence because he'd seen God do something for him in the past. And he had expectation that God will fulfil his promise to him in the future. And he also had confidence because he wasn't relying on other people's opinion. All through David's life, you know, he just did what he thought was right for God on the bad days, what he thought was good for himself, he didn't ever cared what people thought of him. But Saul was the opposite. He was always after other people's endorsement. You know how I said that uh, as king, he disobeyed God? The examples we get in the Bible each time it was because he was worried about what people think. He was told to get all the leaders together for a big sacrifice that Samuel would make and Samuel was late and he got very late and Saul said, right, I'll do it myself. So he did the sacrifice to God, which wasn't his job. He wasn't supposed to do that. And Samuel said, Why? He said, oh, I've, I thought they were all going to leave. He was worried. He was more worried about what they would do than about what God wanted. And in the last one, which we were just reading about, he was given a job to wipe out the enemy and take no booty. Don't take any sheep, don't take any animals. Um, just go and do it and that's it. And then when Samuel turned up, all he could hear was sheep and goats and cows. He said, what's going on? The rule was no booty. He said, oh, I know. But, you know, they wanted to. He was more concerned about what they thought than about drawing a line and saying, no, this is what God wants. So he wasn't the leader he should have been. And when Samuel said, right, that's it, I'm going, Saul tried to grab hold of him. In fact, he tore his coat. But he kept pleading. Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please, at least honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. 
we come to forgiveness. You don't know what's going on in Saul's heart, but it would seem that he's very quick to say sorry, but what he really wanted is not to be embarrassed. You remember, uh, I was talking about David and Bathsheba. Well, when Nathan pulls him up and says, what you did was wrong, it really got to David's heart. And when you get home, have a look at Psalm 51. That's, that's the song that he wrote afterwards, pleading for forgiveness. And you can see that it was genuine, the remorse he felt. He knew he'd done the wrong thing. He was very sorry about it. And he wanted forgiveness. There's this difference between Saul and Samuel, uh, Saul and David. David was genuine in looking for forgiveness. Saul, mm, half and half, not so much. So here we have David living as a person of the resurrection and Saul not. I think at this point we should probably bring in the third person, the big fella, and that's Goliath. Now, uh, we have some photos. Some. Although it's got measurements here, they, this, they're a bit fluffy. I can't give you an exact height. But everyone's agreed pretty well that he was around nine feet tall. So let's, oh, you, I haven't got the picture here. Right, okay, this fellow is Robert Wadlow. He's eight, or he was eight foot 11. So he's the tallest person that we've got a photo of. Uh, born in 1918, died in 1940. So he's about 20, uh, 20-ish at that point. Now, there are different forms of giantism. Some people grow really tall. It, it, the growth is caused by the pituitary gland, which is in the, in the middle of your skull, behind the eyes. And the sort of giant, there are different, as I said, there are different types. Some, they grow really quickly and very high during puberty and then it stops. And there's others where it kicks in at adulthood and the hands and the, the feet and the skull grow bigger. But what Goliath had and, and what Robert Wadlow here has is caused by a tumour on the, on the pituitary. So growth keeps going. And, um, you know, all through their life. And you just keep getting taller and taller. Got a picture of uh, Andre the Giant. Okay, he's, he's a little tiddler of seven foot four, but he was still growing. But because 
he lived into his 40s. He's a lot bigger. He's filled out. So Goliath would have been bulky like him, but just that little bit taller like Robert Wadlow. And, you know, we're not likely to see anyone else grow that tall because they know what the problem is. They can operate and fix it. So if anyone breaks the record, it's because someone wanted to break the record. But, uh, in fact, Andre the Giant, when he was diagnosed at the age of 24, he was told you can... You can have the operation and you won't get any taller. He's about seven foot at the time. And you won't have any of the problems of later life that goes with being a giant. But because we've got to open up your skull, you'll have to retire from wrestling. So he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And he died at the age of 46, but he had a lot of problems with his health in the last few years. See, the thing is, there are a lot of minor problems, but there are quite serious side effects too of giantism and diabetes, various forms of cancer. But there are two here that seem to show up in Goliath. And that is um, you have a mobility problem. As you keep growing, as you get bigger, you get very bad arthritis. There's a lot of strain on the joints. And your uh, joints start to seize up. And the long muscles, very, very strong in, the, in their youth, but starts to hold salt and lose a lot of their strength late in life. So if you've seen Andre the Giant as a wrestler, he's not only big and strong, he's very mobile. But when you see him in his last few years, like uh, we've seen the movie The Princess Bride, he had to give up the wrestling because he couldn't handle it anymore. And in The Princess Bride... You can see he has difficulty moving. He's very stiff in his movements. There's a hint of that in Goliath. Because you see him coming. It's always the feeling that he's moving very slowly. It says that David was running. Saul seemed to move a bit slightly. Can we have the um, the other the other passage before this? The Samuel one Samuel one with the stones. Yep. But the other one, the other problem is even uh, clearer. Okay. So David, he'd been offered Saul's. Uh, armour, but it was too heavy for him. He decided, I'll go as I am. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David 
with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll feed your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. The other major problem of giantism is that as the tumour continues to grow, it starts to press on the optic nerves and you have a vision problem. Have you ever wondered what the armour bearer was doing there in front of Goliath? Why is there a fellow in front with a shield? This is a one-on-one battle. Why is he going before Goliath? He's there because he's leading Goliath. Goliath had eyesight that was so bad he couldn't be trusted to get down the hill by himself. And it says, Goliath looked around. He had trouble seeing. It's like being at a football stadium. You're up high, you can see right across, you can see everything. But Goliath had trouble seeing David, one person in the middle there. It's generally translated, he looked around. Some have looked intently. One of them said he squinted. He had trouble seeing David. And when he did see him, what did he say? said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? What was David doing? He had his sling in one hand. That was just like a leather thong. You hold one end, you wrap one end around your wrist, you loop it around, you hold one end, and you put the stone in the loop. And then you swing it around and you let go of the bit that's not around So he had a sling in one hand, he had his shepherd's crook, his his stave in the other hand. He only had one stick. But Goliath couldn't see that. He couldn't focus enough. He said, you're coming here with sticks? Goliath's eyesight was shot. He had lived past his use-by date. This great invincible being was actually quite vulnerable. So David got the sling 
and he flung the stone. Now, this wasn't a toy. This wasn't a little catapult that you shoot, which can do enough damage as it is. This was an actual weapon. Not just in Israel, but all around the Mediterranean, as far as um, the Balearic Islands of Spain, anywhere there were lots of rocks, they had uh, they had army and artillery. You know they have archers. They used to have the same sort of thing with slingers, and they were incredibly accurate. And you get hit by that; it's like being hit from a bullet. So it was superior tactics on David's part. Goliath was still dangerous. If he tried to come and give Goliath a cuddle, he would have been killed, but he stayed at a distance. So there are superior tactics involved. We can't really say it was a miracle. It's not as if God sent down uh, a meteorite to get rid of Goliath at the time. But it's something better. Because it's an example of living in the light of the resurrection, it's better than a miracle. Because a miracle, we can look at it and say, Okay, that happened once. God did that once 3,000 years ago. Doesn't really make any relevance to us. He did it for David. Doesn't mean he would do it for me. But because the things that happened were a result of David's relationship with God, of living in the light of the resurrection, now it's applicable to us. Because that was the that was the major thing rather than the tactics. The way he lived his life with confidence and expectation. With purpose. Because If Saul had lived like that, he would have been the one that killed Goliath. Maybe not with a stone. Maybe he would have used a spear. But the fundamental difference was their relationship with God. Saul's had gone. David's was there and it was still growing. So... Maybe you're, I'm assuming you're not being monstered by someone nine foot tall. And don't look at Lachlan. He's only six foot four. He's a dwarf giant, okay? But he's not an enemy. But all of us have a giant, an unbeatable foe against us. And that giant is sin. Now, Simon brought us the key verse from last week, uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. If we could have that on the screen. Thank God 
He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the resurrection and Jesus' victory over death, but it's also a victory over sin because really death is just a, a symptom of the sin. Sin wants to take control of us, like the Philistines wanted to take control of the Israelites. Sin wants to cut us off from God, to make us do things that God doesn't want us to do. And that is a giant thing. That is a Goliath because by ourselves, we can't win. Just too powerful. We don't have the strength of will. We can never defeat it by ourselves. But we can be thankful that Jesus has defeated sin and that sin is no longer the invincible enemy. It's an enemy, but it's an enemy that has passed its use-by date. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Here we can have the expectation of victory over sin because God has promised. He's promised it won't be too much for you and he's promised he will provide a way out. A lot of the time with temptation, we think, you know, it comes from outside unexpectedly. But, you know, I think most of the time it doesn't. We know full well where we are vulnerable and we decide that we'll just test it out. We'll give the giant a cuddle. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know where the place is that you're particularly vulnerable. Maybe it's the local cake shop. Maybe it's in front of an internet screen or the pub or a group of friends who are going to let, lead you into gossiping and tearing people apart. Most of the temptations we face, I think, are ones we put ourselves into. So avoid it. Keep your distance. There'll be enough trouble without getting to, without going looking for it. And what is our weapons? Our weapons are leading a resurrection life. We keep our relationship with God firm and constant. If we look at ourselves 
as God sees us. And look for his purpose in our life. If we've got that foremost, then things start to fall into place. We have confidence because of what God has done for us in the past and we have an expectation based on what he has promised us and is living that life that makes the victory over sin real, uh, present, something that we experience and not just read about. It becomes part of our life. And there's nothing that can stand against us when we realise that God is with us, he has forgiven us, and he has a purpose for us, and we'll make sure it happens. Amen. Okay, that's all I've got to say today. <clears throat> now we're going to have a time of prayer. Because the numbers are down, uh, I'll be doing that too. Okay, so let's pray, and then Lachlan's going to come and... Uh, Lead us in the final song, but first thing he'll do is put his hand up like that to get us, give us an idea of how tall Goliath was. He'll do that for us. Thank you, Lachlan. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing that you are our Father, that you have taken us into your family, that you care for us always, that you will hold us up and guide us. We know, Lord, that you know best, that you're in control of things and that going with your direction will give us the best life for us, but more importantly, will make us more useful to you and to those around us. We thank you for providing everything we need to live a resurrection life. And we thank you for forgiving us for when we failed that and walked away from being close to you. Lord, give us the strength and give us the wisdom. When we come up against temptation, we know that you have won the victory and that we can experience that for ourselves if we hold on to you. We thank you for Josh and Alyssa's wedding yesterday and pray that you will continue to bless them and use them for your glory. And we pray for all of us here that you will use us, that other people who need to know you will come to know of your love and forgiveness through us here at Cronulla. Amen.